Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. I asked Cheryl today how we were doing with our Christmas shopping. Like, like, like it matters at this point. Like that ship sailed probably weeks ago. We can't even get Amazon now in time. I remember many a time trying to figure out how to make Christmas just perfect for my kids. Trying to make it perfect with the family. Trying to think through what it was going to be like because that's what we we really do want. We we want this season of the year to be just right. Of course we do. I mean, why would, why would we want anything other than that? And so many of our movies play off of uh, this exact idea, right? So if, if you're a uh, Christmas Vacation National Lampoon's fan, then you know that Clark, he needed to have the absolute perfect lights, which just weren't really working for him so much. And then, then he, he needed the absolute perfect tree, which ultimately had to burn down. And, and then he, it was, he wanted just everything, right? It was, going to be like a, it was going to be like a stock photo Christmas with all of the family happy together. And it was, of course, hardly anything like that at all. This is what, this is, we get to play off of these things in the movies because there's actually a, a longing that all of us have. We actually really do want things to work out just right. You know, it's an interesting thing for us because when you watch the movies and you kind of look through what we decide is the right way that Christmas ought to be, there are some very common themes, right? If the family gets back together, if the parents that were separated uh, come back together, if the dad will stop working so much and finally come and, and, you know, be good to his kids, you know, if the Grinch's heart really does grow three sizes... Or if old Scrooge goes and, and buys, the, buys the goose for the family in need, well then, well, then that's the Christmas spirit. And we look at it, we can go, you see, well, that's the real spirit of Christmas. And we look at it, we go, that's, that's all we really want. But of course, what if you don't get what you want? You know, what if, you know, you don't get the Red Rider BB gun? or whatever that is to you? What if that longing of your heart goes unsatisfied? What if all of the decorations and the gifts actually are stolen by the Grinch and you have none of it? What if the greedy Scrooge doesn't have a heart transformation and he just goes on taking advantage of people and being stingy and refusing to help the people that need it? There are plenty of times where we simply will not get what we long for. And often, even when we get what we long for, it doesn't deliver on what it promised us. Shortly thereafter, and it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's a material thing or an experience or even a relationship, it doesn't give us what we were longing for. The lasting joy, the satisfaction that we hoped it would. One version of this 
sadness, or you might even call it a melancholy around the holidays, is so familiar it has a name. They call it the holiday blues, the holiday blues. Now, if you're really busy during the holidays, for you, you might experience the post-holiday blues, which is really a thing as well. But if you keep yourself super busy over the next few days, right through New Year's, have lots of friends, family, lots to do, have some great food and drink, then you'll probably make it through this, this next week or so just fine. But then come the middle of January, you might get the post-holiday blues. A survey by the American Psychological Association said that the, the levels of stress, anxiety, go up for most everyone around this time of the year. 56% of people said that they have increased pressures at work. They have a lack of time. They have a lack of money. 53% said that they have financial concerns and worries during this time of the year. And don't even get them started about their family gatherings. That's, there's going to be all sorts of trouble there. And our feelings of happiness, love, and all of the sort of high spirits that we get over the holidays, they're often accompanied right alongside them with feelings of fatigue or stress or irritability or even sadness. I totally get that sadness thing because often around this time of the year, I, I have these like bouts of sadness. And so I've self-diagnosed uh, so I have seasonal affect disorder. That's what I like to tell myself. And so, you know, it's a lack of sun and vitamin D. I read it in an article somewhere, so I am sure it's true. If any of you need unofficial diagnoses, I'm, I'm totally your guy because I, I can make this stuff up all day. And so I was like, you know, that must be it. I have some sort of seasonal affect disorder. I just need, I need more sun in February and then everything will be fine. But I think it might be more than that. Because I get very reflective around this time of the year. For whatever reason, I start thinking about the year past and I think about the year that's coming and I think about all of the things that I'd hope to accomplish and achieve and where all of the relationships are at and where I wanted them to be. And, and somewhere along the line, there's usually at least a few threads of sadness that start to come in and I realize it didn't work out quite as I had hoped. Expectations not quite met. This series, Christmas, it's been a teaching series that's been designed to help us to get some biblical principles that we can apply when the family drama or when the money madness or the grief that we will often experience around this time of year when they intrude into the best of our holiday hopes and dreams. But, but we, actually, we actually have sort of betrayed uh, something here. We haven't, we haven't it hasn't been a full disclosure for you because we've picked on a few topics over the, the last few weeks, but there's a deeper reality that we wanted to talk about this evening. You see, anything in this world that sits at the center of your affections, anything at all that we believe will give us significance or security or purpose, anything like this is ultimately going to disappoint us. It will disappoint us. Which sorts, starts to make sense then as to why we have this lingering sense that something isn't quite right. And it's why Christmas, when we put so much pressure on it to be just right, to be perfect, why it could end up such a mess. There's a lingering sense that things aren't quite right. And we all long for 
this perfect world. Now, 700 years before the time of Christ, that's 2,700 years ago, there was a Hebrew prophet. He longed for a day when everything would be made right. His name was Isaiah. And he started his prophecy, what he saw happening in the future. He said, arise, Jerusalem. Let your light shine for all to see. For the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth. But the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. And so he's saying, listen, there's something out there. There's a darkness. It, it, it's over the whole of the planet. And it goes by lots of different names. But there is something that isn't quite right. And he says, no, but what's going to happen is that darkness is going to be beaten back because the light is going to rise upon Jerusalem. And you see, you have this picture of the holy city and this light rising over it and suddenly illuminating it for, and it will dispel the darkness. He goes on and he says, look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your little daughters will be carried home. They were living in exile, and so this was an incredible promise. The families were going to be reunited, people that they hadn't seen, cousins who had been exiled, and others who have just been separated. And you could go even further with this. This is the promise of community coming back to us, of family being restored. In its context, it's more than even just your blood relatives or your distant cousins. This has to do with humanity, our, our common brotherhood, and sisterhood. This is all of the, the people of the earth starting to come back home to be a family again. This is when all family drama, by the way, will cease. And this is a good promise. I think this is, you should remember this part particularly as you ha handle the next couple days. It says, then he said, your heart will thrill with joy for merchants from around the world will come to you. They'll bring you the wealth of many lands, vast Caravans of camels will converge on you. The camels of Midian and Ephah, the people of Sheba, will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. And so for, as you go out over the Mediterranean, all the way out to, to Spain at the time, and you go all the way deep into the east, and there are going to be people coming from all over the world, not just simply the Jewish people returning home, but people from all over the world. They're going to be pouring in to the holy city. And they're going to be bringing the Christmas gifts. They're, they're going to, this is a highlight. You know, we talk about why do we even, why, is, why are gifts a part of this? So why, why do we celebrate Christmas? We love the idea of gift giving because we, we, we follow a gift giving God. And, and they use language like this to talk about not just the abundance that is out there, but also sort of general prosperity for all. This is the promise that there is going to be enough for everyone. There will be no more want. There'll be no more need. There will be just the wealth of nations brought in, bountiful and justly distributed. This is, is what... To, it, it sits in our hearts in these incredibly beautiful ways. It's what we long for. He says, the flocks of Kedar will be given to you. And so the shepherds are coming in and they're bringing, you know, they're bringing their, their flocks, their sheep and their rams. They're going to be brought to their altars. I accept their offerings and I'll make my temple glorious. They'll honor the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has filled you with splendor. And so here we get to see that all of the world comes and worships at the temple. 
They all, the, there's no more of the divisions. There's no more of the jihad. There's no more holy war. There's no more crusades. There's no more of the fighting that has marked humanity for, for, well, since the very, very beginning. In fact, we now all will worship at the one temple, the one true God. And the shepherds are there showing up with their flocks. And he says that your gates will stay open day and night, which is one of their ways that the, the Old Testament, the Hebrews would talk about safety and security. You would only keep your gates open if you knew that there were no enemies who could sneak up and attack you in the night. And so there is no fear anymore. There's no risk anymore. You get to, to leave it open day and night. And not only is it open, it's open for trade and commerce and for, for human flourishing to take place, and they'll call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Though you were once despised and hated, there's just so much that we could pull out of so many of these different phrases. With no one traveling through you, I will make you beautiful forever, a joy to all generations. You see, this isn't just the promise that a king is going to come, that there's going to be this city, and that it's going to be a, there's going to be a, a blip in time where things are going to go pretty good for them, like it had in their past with David or with Solomon. He's saying, listen, this, this is a beautiful forever kind of a thing. This is what we long for. This is a joy to all generations. This isn't going to be a temporary fix. Then he has this fun line. He says, you'll know at last that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. I'll exchange your bronze for gold, your iron for silver, your wood for bronze, your stones for iron, and I will make peace your leader and righteousness your ruler and I love this because it's like everything gets an upgrade it's like when you're playing a video game and you start out with like a wooden shield and then you you level up and you get like an iron shield you level up and you get like a, a like a, a diamond shield or whatever else it is that they do now and so you keep leveling up and, it, and that's kind of what this text is saying it's saying listen all of the common things and all of the things you know there's no more people who are going to be living in 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 shacks that's not the thing everyone's going to be getting an upgrade the whole of society there isn't going to be anything anymore that's made with lousy materials. Everything is going to be made of the best materials. There isn't going to be like shoddy things that were, were, were slapped together, but everything is going to be made with the most beautiful and the most precious of materials. And, the, and what he's saying is just like there's just a, an overall general sense that everything is going to be upgraded. And in that day, violence will disappear from your land. The desolation and destruction of war will end. Salvation will surround you like city walls and praise will be on the lips of all who enter here. No more division, no more fear, no more death. This is what the prophet saw and it's what he was longing for. I was listening to uh, Lizzo sing Some, uh, Someday at Christmas. I don't know if you've heard her, her cover this. It was a Stevie Wonder song. Uh, anyways, she does a great job. Uh, she does a great job with it. And the song, I think Stevie Wonder, he wrote it in like the 60s or something like that. And so you, you kind of like put yourself back in the 60s and you kind of listen to Stevie Wonder. But it, again, Lizzo, she does a, a phenomenal job on it. But, but listen to some of the words that, that are in this song. It says, someday at Christmas, men won't be boys playing with bombs like kids play with toys. One warm December, our hearts will see a world where men are free. Someday at Christmas, there'll be no wars when we have learned what Christmas is for. When we have found what life's really worth, there'll be peace on earth 
Someday at Christmas, we'll see a land with no hungry children, no empty hand. One happy morning, people will share our world where people care. Someday at Christmas, there'll be no tears when all men are equal and no man has fears. One shining moment, one prayer away from our world today. Someday at Christmas, man will not fail. Hate will be gone and love will prevail. Someday a new world that we can start with hope in every heart. Whether it's the 60s or whether it's 2,700 years ago, whether it's today being covered again for us anew, the longing of the human heart is for these things to be made right. Something isn't right, and yet the prophecy was never fulfilled. When the Magi come on the scene hundreds of years after the prophecy was made, Jerusalem was still in tatters. Maybe it was even in worse shape in some ways. Occupied, the world was still broken. The Magi visit Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, and the world around them was, was terrible. And yet something drew the Magi. Yes, it was the star rising and all of that, but there was something else that caused them to make this perilous journey to honor the baby. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. They're heading to the very city that Isaiah was talking about, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. You see, why were they deeply disturbed? Because Herod and the Romans had occupied this land. They already had a plan for world peace. In fact, we name it in history the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they did. They gave us relative peace for many, many, many years, centuries. The Romans were able to enforce a peace with their brutality. And King Herod is saying, listen, I know how to do this. I've got my plan. And we all have our plan. We all have our way of extracting from this world some sort of peace and some sort of, of harmony, some sort of hope that we can delight in. But there simply have never been any efforts by humanity anywhere in all of history that ever can bring about this lasting peace, this shalom, this sense that all is now right in the world. There's no one who has ever been able to bring about genuine equality or universal prosperity. It has simply never happened. Some, in the song, Someday at Christmas, it says, man will not fail. And so you can hear he's longing for that too. He's like, one day we're gonna get it right and we never do. We never do because man always fails. Always fails. No one has ever ushered in the eternal and prosperous kingdom that we all long for. The story goes on. As the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. 
they entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. In the song, Stevie Wonder, he captures this idea that was now facing the Magi. He says, someday all our dreams will come to be. Someday in a world where men are free. Maybe not in time for you and me. But someday at Christmas time. In the 60s, he was already thinking, I don't know if we're going to pull this off in my lifetime. I know what we want. I just don't see how we're going to get there. We have these longings but they always seem to go unsatisfied. And here, the Magi, they know the kind of a world that they're in. They know the risks. They know the dangers. And yet, they're filled with joy and they worship him. They have the promise. They've seen the child. And yet, they know the world is actually not what it ought to be. In fact, it says at the end of this clip here in the story, it says, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. The Magi were looking for something more than simply the next king in a long line of tyrants. They're looking for something that was going to last more than the next political upheaval, the cause of more wars and this unexplained melancholy. I mean, just think about this for a moment with, the, with, the, with, the, with me here. So the Magi, they have some knowledge. They know something from the scrolls, from the prophecies. They know something. But does it really make sense that they would travel way from the east with all of these valuable possessions, risking life and limb and possessions in order to simply go find the next king? Who's going to be king where? In Jerusalem? In Israel? In occupied territory? Under the brutality of the Romans? This doesn't make any sense unless the Magi were looking for something more. See, I think even these these prophecies, they give us the parallels. Isaiah, he mentioned a great light that would rise. And we have the star in the Christmas story. The travelers come from the east. They were the travelers coming from the east. They carried gold and frankincense. There were shepherds in both the prophecy and here with the Magi at the birth of Jesus. And here we see the Jewish shepherds and we see the the Gentile Arabs all coming together, bringing their gifts to to Jerusalem because they knew not simply that this was going to be the king of the Jews, but this was the hope of humanity. This was the fulfillment of the promises of the ages, of the the longing in every one of our hearts in the deepest places. And the gospel writers pick this up. They give us all of these parallels so that we get to see that, that the hope of the world isn't going to be in a city. It's not a place anymore, but it is going to be in a person. And that person was born on that first Christmas night. It's not some political entity or anything like that. It was going to be a child who would fulfill all of the promises and who would satisfy the longings of the human heart. 
You know, so many of us, we long for something that is just out of reach. And it creates this sort of existential angst for so many. Any who are willing to think about it will struggle with this sort of angst. Maybe some of you, you might have heard of this. It's a group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. The New York Times just did a very favorable write-up of their leader, the guy who founded it. He's actually a really, he seems like a really sweet older gentleman. His name is Les Knight, and their motto is, may we live long and then die out. They have a fun logo. It's a picture of a dinosaur and a dodo bird, and they have a cutout of, like, of a person waiting. And so they, what they're calling for is the voluntary extinction of humanity. The idea being that the planet would simply be better off without us. And there's actually a whole lot of people who would say, oh, they're not wrong. I mean, I don't want to die out, but like they're not wrong. And, and here you go, you look at this and you go, what are they talking about? He's saying, well, well, we're the problem with the planet. And if we get rid of people, then the planet will be happy again. I mean, the whales don't appreciate our music anyway. So let's just let them, you know, our music and our art and the things you might say as to what we bring to the planet is just better, just voluntarily die out. And you look at something like that, and you go, wow, what kind of angst causes you to come to that philosophy, to that kind of a worldview? Not to mention, how much sense does it really make? Because we all know with our current cosmologies, the whole planet blows up eventually, or freezes out eventually. It gets hit by a meteor, or we've, the sun blinks out, and so everything dies eventually anyway. So, like, does it actually even make any sense? It's, the, it's not going to be, it's going to be the, the mandatory extinction of everything, which actually is part of the problem with the, with the melancholy. It's part of the cause of the melancholy. Any Avatar fans? Do we have any Avatar fans? A couple who are willing? I, I, I loved the very first movie, and so if you don't know this, the second installment of the movie has just come out. It's going to be a billion-dollar movie. The special effects are startling. They're incredible. Everybody's saying they're just great, incredible stuff. Um, but you've got to be careful if you're going to go. You've got to be careful because the first one actually caused some problems. There was a group of people that started getting depressed, like legit depressed. Like they had, they had like groups and, and they had like online chat and they had to go to count. Like there were counselors who, who were noting this, that they were something. They actually gave it a name, of course, because we name everything. It was the Avatar Blues. I don't make this stuff up. This is true. This is real. Avatar Blues. The people are, the people are blue. The Navi who live on the fictional planet of Pandora are, are blue and they're tall and, and the planet is gorgeous. Anyone, whenever you see, you get immersed in this world, especially if you watch it in 3D and you're just immersed. And this is so incredible. People find themselves overwhelmed with the plight of the Navi, the fictional Navi. But after they left the theaters, they, they, they started noticing that the surface of the earth seemed gray compared to the film. One writer, one post said, when I woke up this morning after watching Avatar last night, the world seemed gray. It was like my whole life, what I've worked for, lost its meaning. It just seemed so meaningless. I live in a dying world. There's no beautiful vistas. There's no symbiotic relationship between the inhabitants of the planet and the creatures of the planet like on Pandora. And you might, you might, you know, we might want to kind of smirk and snicker a little bit, but really what's going on is they're actually wrestling with an internal angst. 
that if we pause our own pressure and, and pace and consumption for just a little while, we too will begin to experience this sort of angst. And contrary to the cynics, the Magi knew that the Christmas promises were all wrapped up in the birth of the baby. He's actually the answer. It's how we get to Pandora. It's how we create the perfect world. In fact, Isaiah, he said it in another place. He said it like this. He said, the child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He'll rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. You see, we want a just kingdom, but we want it without the king. And the Bible tells us that we've got to follow and love and honor and obey the king. And when that happens, we get the perfect kingdom. See, this is, this is the strange melancholy that haunts us. The New York Times did a write-up uh, recently, and they were talking about a young Frenchman who had, in 1831, traveled across America. And they said that it was a 200-year-old book called Democracy in America. And Alexis de Tocqueville, he wrote about some things he observed in the fledgling country, our fledgling country. And one of the most poignant things is he said that he noticed a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants, us, in the midst of abundance. There was so much abundance. He was stunned at how many people had so much, even 200 years ago. And he said, but there's this strange melancholy that haunts them. This could have been written about us today. His observation was that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. And because we were based on freedom and consumption, he says we're we're never actually going to be able to address the strange melancholy. See, we turn to the things of this world to satisfy us, and when we do that, the Bible calls it idolatry. I know we have ideas in our head about what idolatry is, but think about it like this. The buildings that we build today are like ancient shrines. We build them so that they're you know, skyscrapers to impress us with our creative prowess and our engineering might. And we have theaters and we have stadiums where with tens of thousands of people we can engage in corporate worship. We have hospitals and scans and experts who will help us ward off disease and death. And, and we have spas and gyms and, and health food stores in order to secure long life and vitality, and every one of these places has their own form of a priesthood with their own garbs and, and with, with their own practices. And what we do is we go to each of them and we pay homage to them. We make our sacrifices to them in order to secure from them what the ancients would have done at their temples and with their idols. We use, it, we use these sacred, the new sacred spaces to secure our own happiness. Right? And so idols, you know, we think of them as these bad things, and of course they are, but they start as good things. 
And that means it can be family or children or, or career achievement or it could be your social standing or your reputation or, your, or the honor that you, you need to extract from others or it could be making money or it could be leisure, it could be your safety or your security, it could be your political causes or social justice kinds of issues, it could be your beauty or it could be your talent, it could be a romantic relationship, it could be your religious beliefs. Tim Keller says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. You know, this life, it's filled with joy and hope and delight, but we have to resist allowing these things to distract us from what we truly long for, because what we long for is not of this current earth. C.S. Lewis, he saw it beautifully. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that's the beauty of the promise. We were made for another world. This is such an incredible gift if we can wrap our hearts and our minds around this because then everything in this world points in one way or another to the other world. It's the home that we have yet to find. Wade Lewis, he, he poetically puts it, he says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they're not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower that we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country that we have never yet visited. See, we are heading to a place, but it isn't a going. It's not a going out. It's a, it's a coming home. God has put eternity in our hearts. And that means that every discouragement in this life, every disappointment gets to point us to the truer and the more perfect and the promise that was born to us on Christmas. You think of every joy, everything that, you, everything that you participate in, the family and the food and the friends and all of that, these are signposts to lasting joy. See, we, have some, we can now do something with all of these things. We don't have to worship the good things in this life and we don't have to have despair over the things that break our hearts or give us longing. In fact, the longing itself is a gift because this isn't our home. The song said, someday at Christmas, the man will not fail. I'd love to know if he thought that this really meant the man, if it really meant the God-man. Because we really will see a land with no hungry children and no empty hand, a world where people care because the man will not fail. He says, one shining moment, one prayer away. And that's an invitation to each and every one of us. One prayer 
away. Will you turn to the newborn king? Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would stir up in each of us. Lord, when we have these longings, when we have these disappointments, when we have these frustrations, I'm asking, Father, that you would use them to point us back to our eternal home. Lord, when we experience joy and delight, may we with gratitude look at them as a good gift from your hand, as a promissory note that an eternal joy is coming. May we see behind the created things, the creator who loves us and who has promised us an eternity with him if we will only trust and if we will follow the king. We pray, Lord, that you would do this and so much more here at Christmas time and throughout the whole of the year, Lord, drawing us to you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.